Uh, it's likely that. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. But this is an economic show about economics. It's negative growth. Negative growth. Yes, we have right. negative growth. Somehow that's more acceptable in conversations in economics, even though any kid that listens to negative growth, what are you talking about? We have a word for that. <laughs> Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring... Well, you want me to say Jeff? Yeah, I want and, you to say your okay. name. Jeff uh, and... Uh, and Jake. Wait, should I say my name? I think so. Yeah, we're the Jeff stars. And... We're, we're kind of inappropriate stars in that we don't even know that we're stars. When people say no. we're starring in this role, we kind of go, what? what does that mean? We're economists. That's not possible. Uh, so Jeff and Jake McClure are here. We do occasionally know how to say our own names. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we can even do it um, synchronized. It's just very difficult. I know this is a very strange conversation for economists to have, but you've got to take your wins where you can get them. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we're going to be talking today about money and finance, both on the big, 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 big scale of the whole world and the federal government and federal reserve and on the little scale of what's important to do when you're planning for your own future. However, we have some disclosures that must be made. Anybody that talks about money without telling you all the disclosures, I don't know. I don't know if you should trust them or not. And if the disclosures are at high speed and low volume, probably not trustworthy either. But we are the personal wealth coach which is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Just because it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they say we're some kind of awesome fill-in-the-blank. It's just that's the regulatory body. Uh, that's disclosure number one. Disclosure number two, being registered with the SEC, the firm's job, what we do when we're behind our desks, is to give fiduciary investment advice. But that's impossible to give on the radio without violating all the rules that make it fiduciary investment advice. It says there's privacy issues and we don't know everybody we're talking about or to. So in the middle of that, we're going to be giving education rather than advice on the air. Um, and we've got questions already out there. I'm going to drop the email addresses in the middle of the disclosure and see if we can get more questions lined up. Uh, if you want to ask questions to get that educational response, the email addresses in here are Jeff at tpwc.com, as in The Personal Wealth Coach, and Jake at tpwc.com. Would you like to do your most favorite and most wonderful of disclosures? <laughs> Certainly. The information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources that we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Can we make I look a forward to saying that all week. I know you do. It would just be easier. Can we make a word that means guarantee or warranty together? Guaranty, maybe? Guaranty. Now, that's like heavy metal. That's, I don't know. Uh, we, we need a word so that you don't have to be so repetitive and redundant. A warranty. Well, warranty and guarantee both end with E, so they're already with T? alike, but... With T? But they have, different, they have different legal definitions, and this is a legal disclosure. Do you warrant that? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So next up, we don't pay for this radio program. 
because why would we do that? Um, but we also don't get paid to do the radio program. All that is saying this is, this is not an infomercial. We've been doing this program, well, he's been doing it since 1997, and I joined him on the program in 1998 because two hours was too long to talk alone. And I was like, what are you talking about? You do it all the time. But uh, it's still nice. We've been doing this for a long time, free of charge. We've got some benefit from it, though. A lot of our clients listen to this program. And occasionally we get people calling in that saying, hey, we've been listening to your program for 15 years and we'd like to talk to you about investing. What we don't get out of this is like masses of people coming in our door saying, I want to invest many millions of dollars because believe it or not, multimillionaires rarely make a decision about investing all of their millions of dollars based on who they heard on a local radio program or even a podcast. Because we have a, a question from several days ago that said, hey, can you guys cover this on the radio? This is from Justin. First, he says something completely abnormal and thanks us for a great radio program. I'm not sure what he's been listening to. Appreciate that, that he thinks this is a great program. But uh, we do our best. Uh, In today's paper, I read about the markets going up after the Fed reduced stimulus. I thought it would be the other way around, since when money is more readily available, people spend more. Earnings increase, and so would stock prices. Please also clarify the dynamic between the central bank bond purchases and interest rates, and your view on inflation lasting longer than expected. So this is a complex set of questions that we can kind of wrap up and say, number one, I think one of the reasons why the market jumped up instead of down when the Fed says they were they were beginning the taper is because this is this is a really really good saying about any market um and and it's it's backwards in this case it's the sell on or, or buy on rumor sell on news it works the opposite of that when you're talking about the Federal Reserve. When the, when the Federal Reserve says, we believe that at some point in the future we, will, we may raise interest rates, the market goes nuts. They go, oh no, that's horrible, because at some point in the future we may means they're not ready to do it yet. When you raise interest rates, it's to slow down the economy. And they would say at some point in the future, we may do this at a time when things are really bad. You don't want to raise interest rates when they're saying at some point in the future, we may raise interest rates. When you get to the point where we're past all that bad and the Federal Reserve steps out and says, all right, we're ready to do it now. Things look good. Well, the market kind of breathes a sigh of relief. It's not quite as counterintuitive as it looks because we're so consistent about it. It just seems counterintuitive, kind of like quantum mechanics. Until you really get your brain set into quantum mechanics, it seems completely counterintuitive. When that's your norm, the rest of physics is counterintuitive. When we look at the marketplace, it's not physics. It's people's reactions. It's people's understanding and fear and greed. When they're told all at once that the Federal Reserve thinks the economy is doing well and it's ready to stop receiving stimulus, that's just like when you're sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor says, we're ready to stop chemo. If you're in the middle of the chemo and the 
cancer's not been responding very well, but the doctor says, when the cancer responds, we're going to stop chemo. That's a scary sounding thing. Well, you're going to stop. It's not ready yet. So that's why we've had, and this is kind of the thought on why we've had the big taper tantrums when the Federal Reserve's hints that some point in the future will stop stimulating the, the bond market. And then when they actually stop doing it, it has the opposite effect. So that's, that's a big chunk of that question. The, the fact that, that interest rates dropped for the 10-year right as the Federal Reserve stopped buying bonds. Well, what, what does that even mean? What is the relationship there? And this is the next part of the question. Do, do you want to hit that or you want me to continue for a second? And then Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Um, the money market is just a market like everything else. It's supply and demand. And I've, I've used this analogy before because it works really well. Uh, most people get this. If you're out to buy a car or you're out to buy a house, and there's a lot of companies out there trying to give you money as a loan, the more companies that are trying to loan you money, the better choice you have. It's not like all of them are offering low interest rates, but you're likely to go with the one with the low interest rate because there's more choice. And if fewer of them are offering you the loan, then you have less choice. Your interest rate's probably going to be higher. That's true across the board. That's just supply and demand. When there's enough people out there offering their money as loans, interest rates get down. They go down because they've got to compete with each other to get your business. When there's people that are more afraid about making loans, so fewer people are doing it, or they look around and they say, I can get a better return somewhere else than making this loan, then less money is available there, and that causes interest rates to go up because they don't have to compete as hard against the other people who aren't in the market anymore. So when the Federal Reserve is buying bonds, what does that mean? They're loaning money. To buy a bond is to loan money. And I realize that we call it something different. It's like buying something instead of loaning somebody something. That's really the big confusing part. If you just Consider every time somebody says buy a bond, you hear make a loan. It makes a lot more sense. So as people are, more people are getting out of the loan market, you would think, whoa, the big gorilla in the room is no longer going to be putting $15 billion out of its hundred and, what is the total amount that they're doing per month? 120 million, 120 billion. So they're going to drop down to 105 billion a month. And people go, oh, well, that's still a lot of money going in there. And when we saw interest rates drop on the 10-year, it's because people got more faith in the economy of the United States when the Federal Reserve said that. And they said, well, okay, well, I'll loan some money then. If there's less risk out there, I'll put some money in. That's the way it's supposed to work. The Federal Reserve is called the lender of last resort. If there's other people willing to make that loan, the Federal Reserve shouldn't make it. They're the ones that are supposed to be the last one in line to make the loan. So this, when you said earlier, Jerome Powell's been doing a fantastic job, it's absolutely the way this is supposed to work for him to say, I'm lowering stimulus, and then the market stepped in instead and upped the stimulus from the marketplace by at least as much 
as the Federal Reserve was tapering. Otherwise, interest rates wouldn't have dropped. More money came out of people's pockets to loan to the federal government or to buy from other people with bonds when the Federal Reserve said we're stepping back. So that's the dynamic there. The Federal Reserve stepped in when other people were not willing to put money in the bond market. That's their job, to keep the bond market from collapsing or interest rates from from rising drastically in bad times. That's when people are least likely to make loans. If you think about this from a very local perspective, say you're in Corpus Christi and a hurricane hits and you've got a business in Corpus Christi and your business took some damage. And usually you're making loans to other people in the area. Hey, you've got a business you're starting up. I'll make you a loan. Are you likely to be making lots of loans when you have your own business to fix? And the answer is kind of universally no. You're going to cut back on how much you're loaning out. Well, that's when the lender of last resort kind of steps in. Someone from outside the community, or if it's a big enough disaster, the Federal Reserve steps in and says, hey, I've got some money to loan, and I know you're good for it. You're just going through some really rough times right now. And that's what we've been seeing. So now I think I've beaten that part down. I think it's clearer, clear as mud at least. It covers the ground. Um, There's also the last part of the question. Do you want to get this? Please also clarify the dynamic between the central bank bond purchases and interest rates. I think I covered that part. You did. The last part is the view on inflation lasting longer than expected. That's the part I think you should cover because now we can move into supply chain issues. Well, the issue here, wait a minute, what do you want me to cover? Because the last part of the question is about the relationship between the purchases. No. So, so this is a complicated series of questions. So in, in one sentence, it's clarify the dynamic between the bond purchases and interest rates and your view on inflation lasting longer. So I think I okay. got everything up yeah. to there, but this is one I think you were ready to talk about anyway. Inflation is probably... The future is always uncertain, but inflation is probably not going to last a real long time. I yep. mean, there's there's a couple of causes for inflation, and we mentioned this in the newsletter. The one that people are afraid of is a combination of things. It happened in the 1970s, and it was quite severe because, frankly, after we went off the gold standard, we didn't know what the heck we were doing, and we are making a lot of mistakes. But when you have wages and compensation rising faster than inflation so that people have more money continually have more money to spend and the prices are chasing the wages. You get into what's called a wage price spiral so that the more wages go up, the more prices go up, the more prices go up, the more wages go up. And that is generally gotten into very slowly. It doesn't involve shortages of supply. It, it, what it involves, and it's not a single event that causes it, it's a slow buildup over time of something. That's dangerous. Now, the other side of inflation, and we've had this many times in our history, uh, it, where you have a sudden supply shock. What's a supply shock? Well, that's where something changes in the system. And the things that were previously in great supply, aren't anymore. So the price goes up because there's supply and demand is they 
one immutable law of uh, of economics is supply and demand. If you have a shortage of supply and a high demand, the price will go up. The government has tried to stop that on a number of occasions. The governments in various countries have tried to stop that. It doesn't work. The price will go up. And if the government really slams down hard on it, you wind up with a black market. Yeah, and he, here's now, here's the exception to that. Again, just jump back to a, a hurricane. You get a big hurricane, and you would expect plywood prices to go up and bottled water prices to go up and so on. We've got some localized laws against price gouging in emergencies. Those are localized. You can't do that across the entire country. It's not possible. People try. It just doesn't work. And it, it's going on right now. We have supply disconnects. We have some problems. And it had to do ultimately with the pandemic and the fact that there was a lot of displacement in manufacturing and there was a lot of displacement in labor. And when we roared back into recovery, people were spending their money in a different place than they'd been spending before. And the allocation of supplies to allocation of supply to meet that demand was in the wrong direction. So the prices on some things went down dramatically and the prices on other things went up dramatically. That is not generalized inflation. Let me give you an example that was in the Wall Street Journal that I think was really appropriate. The price of lumber went up phenomenally last year. Right. And it went up again early this year. It was still up. And then it dropped. And it dropped dramatically. One of the reasons the price of lumber dropped is not because it was, by the way, because it was a, suddenly a lot more trees getting cut down and the lumber mills were cutting a lot more trees and so on. It went up because a lot of people were doing home improvement projects and a, and a lot of people decided to buy houses during the pandemic. And so there was a tremendous demand for lumber and the lumber supply is somewhat limited because there's only so many sawmills and you have to build new sawmills to make more lumber. So the price went up. Did we suddenly get a flood of new lumber into the system that brought the price down? No. What we got was a shortage of brackets, metal brackets. They're not made in the United States generally, by the way. You know about this already? Yeah, these are the things that, that connect like two-by-fours together in construction. So there's yeah, this they, metal frame that you put around the end of a two-by-four, and you can drive the nails through the metal, and it's a much stronger connection. It's better for yeah. hurricanes, tornadoes, and all that good stuff. Anyway, there's a critical shortage of those things. And if you don't have the brackets to attach the lumber to other pieces of lumber, you're not going to buy lumber. So all of a sudden, the demand for lumber dropped. But the prices for the brackets went up. That is what's going on in a nutshell. All across our economy, we have little bits and pieces of things that are in short supply that are stopping the entire train. So An just, example, just, to, just the, to jump in real quick, the lumber prices, just with some numbers, uh, lumber U.S. dollars per thousand board feet, and by board feet, I mean feet that just are not having a great deal of fun at the moment, so they're quite bored. No, no, that's not what I mean. Uh, the, per thousand board feet, and this is averaged across all of the lumber, two-by-fours, plywood, it's just like uh, an amalgam of these prices. It's a pretty good tracking measure. And uh, it's, you can go to the Chicago Lumber Futures Indexes to see this. We peaked out in May of this year. I mean, last year in, in uh, the fall, in September, we were up to $989 per thousand board feet. Um, and if we go back to like 2017, 
talking about 360. Even in 2018, we're talking about 340. That's the normal kind of range. Well, we went up last fall into near $1,000 territory. That's three times as much. But then in May of this year, we came up to $1,680. We're, we're down to $615 now, $620. So all that's saying is that we had this massive spike right before the summer building season. And then this ba- massive crash where it went from um, that, that number of, you know, we're talking 1,700-ish uh, dollars per thousand feet. And then it dropped down to the 440 range in a matter of a month. So you, you, when you say tremendous volatility, I wanted to give, this is like jumping up a factor of five times and then dropping down a, a factor of 50%. So, so go ahead now. Sorry. Those were just numbers to fill in the blanks. Did Anyway, the point is the inflation we're having right now is because of shifts in supply. Yes, there's a lot of money in the system and people have money to spend, but we've had money to spend before. The money, the excess money that's in the system accumulated because of two things. One, people weren't spending it on eating out and doing things that they normally do for a while, which means that people accumulated a lot of money that they, and they were scared, so they saved a lot of money. Savings rate is still up above 8%, which is really unusually high for the United States. It's not as high as it used to be. It was up around 14 or 15%. Now, the other thing, of course, there was stimulus money that came directly into the economy. A lot of that's already been spent. Um, but we had this big shift in the way we spend money and how much money we had to available, free money that we weren't spending on something else to spend. And you hit that with a shift in the way we spend and you pull a bunch of truck drivers out of the system because of COVID and you have instant price jump. Now, are any of those things sticky? Any of those things going to stay around for a long time? No. Uh, it may take a while to unwind it. It may take a year or two. And I, people are complaining that he that the Chairman Powell said it was transitory. It is transitory. A couple of years is a short ter- period of time when we're talking about economics. It's not that it's going to happen in, for six weeks and then go away. And And if it does get sticky and hang around, then the Federal Reserve will probably deal with that and they'll raise interest rates. But I think two years from now, it'll be gone. Now, why? Because you think about all the causes of prices going up. None of them have permanence. People are back to going back to work. They're going, matter of fact, the, some of the other data that we have to report on this week is the uh, ISM, the I, Institute for Supply Management, reported that the growth in services, the services side of the economy was phenomenal. It's up like 60, their index is up to like 66%, 67%. Whereas 50, anything above 50 is growth. Anything above 60 is insane. That's, that is not sustainable. But we're up nearly to 70% in growth in the services side of the economy, which means that people are going over and going, they're going out to eat, they're going to movies. Uh, I was at a movie this last week that the theater was full. I mean, it was packed. There weren't any seats left which we didn't, we haven't seen in some time. We've gone to restaurants where they're pretty well packed out. What's going on is we're shifting back to normal spending, which is going to take some of the pressure off the supply chain. The supply chain is going to fix itself because there's a lot of money to be made there. And truck drivers are either going to start 
driving trucks and we're going to have plenty of truck drivers or if that doesn't work out, we'll wind up with a lot of automated trucks on the highway. But it'll go away. This is not long-term inflation. This is short-term. This is a short-term burst of inflation. And it will. I'm quite comf- comfortable the fact that two years from now, it, we will not be having high inflation. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the bond market completely agrees with me on that point. Right. And, I, and I've got one more thing. We're about to have to go to commercials. But one more thing. Well, it's actually a series of one more things, but all compacted together. John Deere, Kellogg. Um, Frito-Lay, Nabisco, these are all companies. I'm just listing names. They're all companies that have had strikes or are currently involved in a strike from unions. And consistently across all of these major strikes that have took, taken place over the last four months or so, management is winning these things. John Deere is in the middle of it right now, and basically they just offered their employees a 30% pay increase over the next six years, continue to pay 100% of their health care, give them uh, a better set of structures on their benefits, and that got voted down by the union. So John Deere has been bringing in trained non-union employees and they're saying that got voted down. That was the last time we're going to the con- to the to the negotiation table because we just offered you. We're already paying you more than the industry standard across the board. This is John Deere's perspective, and it's true when you look at the benefits at John Deere versus any other tractor ma- manufacturer in the world. The benefits are just completely huge. And they just offered a 30% pay increase to take place over a six-year period. That may have been inflationary. To give somebody a pay increase over a six-year period, 30% just for being there, is an inflationary move. But it got voted down by the union. So John Deere is going a cheaper route. They're saying, all right, you don't take that. We're not going to give you a 50% pay increase. We're not going to pay more than the cost of your health insurance. How do you do that? Uh, what what are we supposed to do to give you guys a better deal? And the union, this is the United Auto Workers Union in this case, and these all of these different places have had different unions in the strike. Um, the United Auto Workers are saying, hey, we've got you over a barrel. There's a shortage in labor right now. That spiral wage increase because of shortage of labor causing prices to go up on John Deere proc- tractors causing everybody else's prices to go up, which causes everybody to enter into long-term contracts for even higher wages. That's what we saw as stagflation in the 1970s. The fact that each of those big stripes, all the way up to the John Deere one, which is not resolved yet, they're still on strike, but John Deere is maintaining their production. All of that says that the management side of this, the, the runners of the business are saying, if we increase wages, we're not going to be profitable. So all of that is stuff that says that the stagflation fears are not as big as they as people think they are. They, they should just get tamped down. I think we hammered and hammered on that one. A little more about inflation. Uh, one of the things you can be looking forward to is the fact that anything that's made out of wheat is going to rise in price. Yes. It's because of the Chinese, right? Um, we can say that about everything now. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's the approved statement about all supply chain shortages is you just say, oh, it's the Chinese. Or you, you could fill in the blank of uh, it's, uh, it's voting rights. 
Well, in this case, it's a poor harvest of spring wheat. Yeah. And we've had some bad weather. And that causes the price of wheat to go up. And you throw in the price of transportation jumping because there's a shortage of truck drivers. And anything that's made out of wheat is going to rise in price. So get ready for that one. It's already, that's definitely transitory. So is the beef. Now, beef is up like 31% in the last quarter. I think you probably discovered that when you went to the store to buy yes. beef, didn't you? Nice beef. Just just as a side note, Elder Baldy here got even more elder, more elder yesterday. What are you saying there, Sonny? Right. And we had a, a steak dinner, and the steak was um, a little bit of a sticker shock. Yeah. It was not, a good steak. Not a, not a steak dinner at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. My younger Baldy here marinated and cooked some excellent steak for me. But the, the point that I want to make... Uh, so Kansas what you're City, saying is that the stakes have raised. Kansas City wheat is up 40% since last November. That's a lot. That is, and that's contributing to inflation. But I wanted to come back to inflation. There are a few things, one of them is wheat, that is driving up inflation and a lot of things that aren't driving up inflation. Uh, Jake mentioned that the board, the future, lumber futures dropped from $1,600 to $600. Then one of the reasons it dropped because you can't get trusses. You right. can't get trusted because the plates that hold them together are in short supply. This is going to go on for a while, and I think it's important uh, to recognize that that doesn't mean we have runaway inflation. It doesn't mean that things are going to turn terrible. It just means we're going through a transition. These transitions are where we move forward. These transitions are where new companies start up. For instance, if, if we realize that there's a shortage of these plates that enable us to build houses, and the price is up on those. Somebody's going to start building the plates because the price is up. But there's a lag between the time the price rises and the time it makes sense to build it. People weren't drilling a lot of holes in the ground to pump new oil out recently because the price of oil is low. But now we're seeing the rig count start to go up. We're seeing more drilling going on because the price is high. But it takes time. And it takes a while to stabilize. And we were stable for a long time. And we got kind of in a rut. And we've kind of been blasted out of the rut, which is a good thing because when we look back on this, we're going to see a lot of new and innovative things that took place because prices went up. Right. I have tremendous faith in what's going on and what's going forward. This is another old saying in economics. Disability uh, drives innovation. And what we're experiencing in the supply chain issues is a disability. We had an ability to get this stuff when we wanted it. When demand went up there's people with money that are willing to spend it to get this this stuff therefore the market is going to make it easy for them to get it this that's just how it works that means the supply chain issues that we're we're seeing one of the pieces of infrastructure that was in the infrastructure bill was a bunch of billions of dollars to work on the ports to dredge them out again we just dredged them out a few years ago to make them deeper but the tankers and the uh, container ships are getting bigger and bigger and they're getting bigger faster than we're dredging. So we need to dredge more because we need more to fit on each ship. Because if you've got more on one ship, it takes less time to unload it than if you have two ships. And that's where we're going. Bigger and bigger ships. There may be an end to that at some point where we reach some size that is you know, way they too have. big. They've already reached. They've already reached it. Uh, they've reached it in a lot of areas. The evergreen ship that gets stuck in the, right. That's an example. The canal. Of canal issues are going to be a thing consistently well, those, in the future. 
those they've stopped building ships that large because there's simply too many places in the world where they don't fit very well. Right. You would have to only go directly across the Pacific, no canals, uh, it, or go around the Horn of Africa, which increases the time. Well, that's what and happened again, when when they ever uh, when when the the uh, canal was blocked. Is hundreds of ships had to go around the Horn of Africa, had to go all the way down south and come back around to go through <laughs> Gibraltar to get into the Mediterranean. I've almost come to the conclusion that any organization or institution or ship or anything else has ever at the beginning of it. I'm just going to steer away from this because yes. Evergrande is another issue. Yeah. Um, Evergrande, Evergreen. Yeah. The um, Chinese don't give us a lot of data about what's going on in their economy. So we have to make some guesses at it. But what we can say is there are several major real estate companies in China right now with a tremendous amount of debt who are either on the verge of, or have actually collapsed. And this could, this, this, this is one of the things that people didn't forecast very long ago. I'm certainly no way expert on China, but I can say that if there is in fact a domino effect real estate collapse in China, like the one we saw in the United States in 2008 and 2009, and I think it's a real possibility that will occur, by the way, right? that will have a negative effect on the global economy and a negative effect on the United States because there'd be a lot of places in in China where they don't have the money to do what they need to do. And a lot of the stuff that we use to build things in the United States is actually the parts are made in China. It's there's it is, more potential. There's potentially more bumps in the road as we move forward. Just sure. on that real quick, China's manufacturing activity has contracted for the last two months. Yeah. It's shrinking. Uh, it's likely that, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, but this is an economic show about economics. It's negative growth, negative growth. Yes. We have right. negative growth. Somehow that's more acceptable in conversations in economics, even though any kid that listens to negative growth, what are you talking about? We have a word for that. <laughs> anyway, they've experienced this contraction for two months now in a row that they are producing less. They are manufacturing less because they're having these shutdowns at the same time that they're experiencing this pretty nasty debt issue across the real estate sectors and massive government crackdowns and seizures of assets. It's now illegal to mine or own Bitcoin in China, where the majority of Bitcoins are owned. Are, are you aware that it's illegal to use the term, it just became illegal in China to use the term tennis in an email message? Tennis? Yes, tennis. Whoa. Is, is it there was a tennis star who who uh, criticized Chairman Xi. Okay. So what we're seeing so there is... They a, are now saying if you send an email message out with the word tennis in it, it will get blotted out and you may get a visit. Yeah. So what we're and saying other, here is... That's, go ahead. The other thing that's illegal to use an email in China as of about a week ago is Winnie the Pooh. Was it used as a like a political statement about somebody? It was... A, finally, the uh, whoever it is that the email censors are realized that Winnie the Pooh was Chairman Z. The people were using him to represent. Z. They were they were saying Winnie the Pooh when they when they were criticizing Chairman Z. It sounded uh, like they were criticizing Winnie the Pooh. So uh, why do I bring this up? Because in an authoritarian an authoritarian authoritarian I get the word right here government innovation dies and the Chinese are depending on innovation to catch up with us and I don't I think they have just slit their own throat or shot their own foot if you will anyway yeah. go ahead.
Yeah, we'll and, talk about China. yeah, that that whole concept, the manufacturing in in China slowing down, right in the middle of a supply chain shortage. This is part of the reason why we're getting the supply chain issue is that the manufacturing place that we thought of as never-ending supply, just as a side note, our balance of trade, our deficit of trade with the rest of the world is at an absolute record high. We are buying a lot more from them than we're selling to them, uh, unless you count dollars that we're sending out, because that's a manufactured commodity as well. The Chinese are in a massive surplus of trade situation, but their manufacturing is falling off and their economy is likely experiencing the worst growth that it's had in the last 40 years. Uh, All of this is going on while the government is clamping down hard and the United States is bringing back as much of its supply chain issues to itself, not as a government. That would be like a move that the Chinese government would do and say, hey, we're going to direct all our companies to do this. We only do that in extreme situations like when a law has been passed by Congress to say we're going to direct all companies to make sure that they wear hard hats while banging their heads with hammers, that sort of thing. Um, in China, they don't need Congress to do anything. The dictator dictates, and that's the law. All of that is to point at some things. I kind of wanted to concentrate down to the personal financial planning side. We're watching the savings rate. If At any time in my career, if I had seen a savings rate in the United States of 9%, I would say, oh my goodness, all my wishes have come true. People have suddenly turned around and seen the errors of the ways and they're going to be saving. This is a drop from what it was a year ago. What was it up to 16%? Was the I think it rate? touched 16, but it, it stabilized at about 14 for a while. Right. So 14% of people's income was going into their bank account across the United States because people were scared. We're now down to 9%, but a traditional rate is a negative number. For the last several decades, we flirt a lot more with a negative uh, savings rate, which is to say people have nothing in their bank and they have overdraft going and their credit cards are, are getting bigger. To the other way around where we've been paying credit cards down and we've got savings at a rate that's just phenomenal, you that are listening to us right now, you're probably a good representation of that. You probably have more in savings and less in credit card than you did three years ago. I can say that with some confidence because it's really unlikely that you would leave this program going and be interested in it if you hadn't already done that. People that listen to this program generally are doing it because they want to improve their financial well-being. Those are habits that you make. So what we would say to you is continue to keep your savings at a good rate. Continue not to use your credit cards. Continue to invest for your future in a well-diversified portfolio. Those are all good things that we can take from this moment in bad bad times to say, if you maintain these habits, it's really hard to say that that's going to be bad for you. It's really easy to say that's going to be good for you. So that's 
something, I think it's maybe the most important thing that we're telling you in this two-hour period. We've talked about all these big macro things and talking about supply chain issues and inflation and who's going to be chairman of the Federal Reserve and uh, infrastructure bills. And the reality is that right now, the habits in the United States around finances are in the process of making a major, major shift, as big a shift as what China's going through in the authoritarian side. We're going through on the self-responsibility side, and as much as we hear about the government handouts and the stimulus, if everybody was just expecting that, oh, yeah, we don't have to worry, we're going to get a stimulus check. Oh, we don't have to We wouldn't see a 9% savings rate. So the habits that you're developing right now on average, are being developed by everyone. It's just a question of how long you're going to keep those habits and whether or not you're going to change in a year or two when you start to forget the, the, the fear of the pandemic and you start saying, oh, I, can, I don't need all that money in my bank account. I'll just spend it all and get some more credit cards. I think we've seen a big shift and it's kind of like what happened to the people that lived through the Depression. It changed the way they thought about money. And for some of them, it changed it for the good. And some of them, it changed it for the bad. Like there were a whole bunch of people that just stopped trusting banks in general during the Depression because a lot of banks failed. And so they never wanted to go to a bank. We don't have that. We Maybe, maybe we trust the banks too much at this point because the number of people that I've talked to in the past month that have been saving and they are higher income people. They're not people that would have like tens of millions of dollars, but it's a dual earning couple. They're both professionals. They're making money and they haven't been going on vacation. And I ask them how much money they have in the bank and they say, well, we have $380,000 in the bank. And we say, wow, that's amazing. Well done. What are you doing? Is that all in one bank? And they say, oh yeah, it's in one bank. And I say, well, that's more than the FDIC covers. So why don't you take some of that money from that bank and put it in another bank? People trust it's per account, two hundred fifty thousand dollars per account per registration, yes. per owner. In the so so if you and let me kind of get into this a little bit specific. If if Joe uh, John Doe has an account in his name, say he's got five accounts at the same bank, and each of those accounts has fifty thousand dollars in it, he's covered because he's got a total in the bank in his name alone of $250,000. If he has more than that, even in another account at the same bank, it's not covered. Unless he shares the registration like a joint account. Mm, if it's John it. and Jane Doe, they get a separate $250,000, and then Jane Doe has her own $250,000. So when you look at the coverage on this, you can situate your bank accounts if you're willing to have a joint account in there to get more coverage at the FDIC. Let's uh, give the email addresses out one more time. If you have a question for us that you'd like us to answer, we've got only about 15 minutes left in the hour. The email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake and or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there, read our past newsletters. You can uh, listen to our radio program going back lots of years. You can listen to a podcast of our program wherever you look for podcasts. We're in all the major providers. 
Uh, you can also email us directly or contact us through the form. The emails are jeff at tpwc.com or jeff at tpwc.com.